Hello and welcome again to Planet Project Owner. This is your host, Scott. Listen, this has been a, uh, a wild week, a uh, wild week for me, both uh, professionally and personally, the whole deal. Uh, I'm really glad to be back. I'm super pumped about today's episode and what we're going to talk about. Uh, a couple of things, uh, a couple of reasons for that is uh, this is basically, this episode is, is essentially driven off of feedback. I asked you guys to share some stuff with me about what was effective for you. Uh, as it relates to user stories, and uh, boy, did I get it! I got some, uh, I got some really good feedback, some really cool things that you guys are doing. I see that I really like. I'm going to use one uh, kind of use case for one scenario here as an example uh, from a listener today um, in this episode. But before I get too much into today's episode, I do want to mention to you that um, uh, just a little housekeeping here: what we do here at Planet Product Owner, we uh, we don't simply interview people across the world and repeat the same things that you can find in a book or a presentation. That's not what this is about. Um, I've gotten some pretty good feedback, by the way, on this concept and this approach, so I'm going to keep doing it. Um, This journey is is essentially about learning together, sharing experiences, uh, tactical day-to-day things that you should do or that you could do um, to help you improve as a product owner and become more effective. Now, what I've noticed, too, in the listening audience is that we don't just have product owners in here. <clears throat> Excuse me. We have all kinds of folks listening. And I know this because you're sending me feedback. I get organizational leaders uh, giving me some validation and some feedback, some questions. Scrum masters, team members, product owners, all the like. And even people who are considering going into the product owner role, maybe coming from a product management background or from a risk background. Uh, thinking, hey, you know, my skill set probably matches up and lines up with this. And uh, I would encourage you, you know, jump in however it is that you feel like you can. Check with your organization, see what opportunities exist out there. There's a few questions you could probably look for. And uh, I shared some of that feedback with one of the listeners over the past week um, about kind of breaking into the role. Um, So, again, I love feedback. Uh, This is what we do on this uh, podcast. That's the nature of it. It's really a conversation. Um, it's more, I put more emphasis on thinking patterns, um, stuff that you can take back with you, think through what it is that you're doing and, and try to figure out unique ways or even, you know, not even unique ways maybe, but, uh, put your own fingerprint on what you're doing here to become more effective. Cause after all it is, there is not a, uh, one size fits all for all of this stuff. Now about the feedback, getting back to that first started out with maybe an email or two, maybe a LinkedIn message or two every now and then. Boy, now I'm getting like uh, emails all day, every day, it seems. So if I'm not re- responding to you in what you think would be a timely manner, just remember I'm I'm getting a little bit uh, overwhelmed with some of the email, but I will get back to you. Uh, it's not a big deal, really. It's not. If you, can, if you don't mind just uh, giving me a day or two to reply, that would be great. Um, Again, I welcome it, Scott at PlanetProductOwner.org. We all need validation that we're doing the right thing, and so far you guys are doing that. So, <clears throat> for you listeners, a couple of other housekeeping notes. Finally, um, just to kind of circle back on, I updated a title for um, the episode just prior to last week's episode. I think it was. It was that three-part series that I shared with you about traditional meets agile. I renamed the third episode because when I went back to listen to it, I found that I was really focusing on the journey map or the story map. Uh, I think that's a great uh, skill that a product owner should be able to develop and even a product manager for that matter. 
Um, but we uh, we'll we'll circle back to that one later on and talk a little bit more to talk about some of the options and your negotiating power that you have in doing an exercise like that. Um, then we moved forward and we talked about the user stories. <clears throat> Boy, I got a lot of feedback on that episode. Um, we're into uh, we're kind of getting into the meat of today's episode. Uh, again, a lot of feedback came in, and I do want to talk about some of the things that were shared with me via email uh, because I asked you to share. And so I'm glad you did. So today we're going to dive into a couple of real world examples that uh, one of my listeners uh, had submitted to me via email. I want to go through first and I want to talk about what he shared um, as far as user stories are concerned, because I think everybody's going to benefit from the way that he's doing it here. And uh, the next uh, the next segment, we want to talk about some other questions that he had, too, as well. Uh, some things that he wanted me to maybe talk about and consider for a topic in the, in in these episodes. So, uh, so hang tight. We're going to go to the next segment here in just a second, and uh, and we'll hear from Hans from Estonia. Believe it or not, that's fantastic, by the way. And if you do email me, look, put your put your name in town. You know, I mean, let me know where you're from if you don't mind. That would be great because some of you I can find on LinkedIn, some of you I can't. Um, I see the metrics here. We're, you know, I've got, there are listeners to this thing all across, you know, Europe, um, in South America and Central America, in North America, um, even down to the Netherlands and, uh, some parts of Australia. So, uh, just make sure that I, that I know where you are and, uh, we'll, uh, we'll get, I'll get back with you just as soon as I can on some of these topics. So hang tight. We'll go to the next one. Stand by. And so now, uh, let's talk about this uh, email that I got. Um, I'm citing from Hans in Estonia. Thanks again for your feedback, man. I hope everything's going well for you. I appreciate your feedback and listening. Um, so here's what he writes. I'm an avid listener to your podcast and respond, uh, responding to the latest episode's call to give you my tips and tricks on user stories. So first he points out he's dropped the as a and I want to from the template that we talked about to use more uh, of a simple structure it's also readable outside the development team. So he's talking about marketing, support, sales, etc. So instead of, as a user, I want to see statistics about a campaign or campaigns, I write, user sees statistics about campaigns. So that's the first one. So keep that in mind. He's dropping the as a and I want to part from that template, which is great. Um, what I want to do is read these off and then I'm going to give you a little bit of feedback on each one and what I'm, what I'm finding that he's doing here and and how I think this is going to work, um, pretty effectively. So maybe you can pull something from it. The next thing he says, I will put down the goal separately as the user stories description first row. It really clears my backlog list and it makes the user stories more readable while remaining on a focus for myself and developers. So what he's saying here is that it sounds like, um, putting down the goal separately as a user story description, like in his first row, I think what he's saying here is he's splitting it up. And uh, I'll remind you how I how I told you guys how I structure my product backlog, where I break down the user role, the goal, the why, you know, and, and the benefit, value, gain, benefit, or whatever. Because what that does is it puts me in mind of those different roles, and I come up with those little nuggets as we're going along. I'll, I'll again go back to that in a minute, um, but it seems like he's separating that so he's clearing it up a little bit more and making it again easier to read because um, obviously he's sharing this backlog, which is great. Um, 
Next thing he says, I use when, when user, then user, the template for describing prerequisites. So an example of that he gives me here is when the user is on the login page, has clicked the login button, then the user sees a message to log in. Uh, I'm sorry, sees a message to log in. Please provide your email and password. And then the focus is put to the email field. So essentially what he's doing is describing behavior here. So uh, the next thing he mentions here is very important to discuss and agree with the development team in a set of predefined roles. For example, we have user, admin, visitor, designer, developer. All are outside roles that can also have different levels of privilege that will be described when necessary in the when user part of the story. So these were some of the tips and tricks that, uh, that he suggested or that he offered that, that he's using over here with his team. It seems like it's working pretty well. And so what I want to do is talk a little bit more about what he's, what he's saying here. You know, when he talks about dropping the as a and I want to, to use more of a simple structure that's readable. Um, and, and just basically the story reads, user sees statistics about campaigns. You know, the first thing that, that, that comes to mind here and what he's, what he's working from is that he is not only, um, he's, he's clearly stating the goal, right? But it's not a, it's not really deep. In other words, I'm saying, what he's saying is that we want to see some statistics about the campaign. We're not saying we want to see this column, that column, the other column. All of those are going to be in your requirements. And remember, your story is going to point to your requirements. It's not your requirement. So now all of a sudden, the development team understands the goal, right? Now, when he's mentioning here that he's got these outside groups, and um, we're talking about defining his target market, you know. Y'all remember we talked about domain language and developing kind of your team language? It looks like these are the things that Hans is doing that helps his team understand the goal and it helps him understand the user or the audience that we're trying to target with this thing. And, you know, in defining the target market, defining the market, defining the users, you know, an old buddy of mine told me uh, a long time ago, he was in sales and he told me just how important, how important it was to define your target market. And that is, that is a really big deal, even for us in software, even for us in design. You know, it's from a user perspective, right? And whoever that user is, that's what we're wanting to define. And so when he's going into these descriptions, like, for example, he's, he's, uh, he's basically got a set of predefined roles. He's saying we have a user, an admin, a visitor, designer, developer. All of those are different levels of privileges or different levels of, uh, of rights, I guess, or uses of the system that he's developing in, you see. And so now the team understands that if you're this, then you have these attributes. If you're an admin, you have these attributes. If you're a designer, you have these attributes. And so along with those attributes comes their own set of, of uh, requirements, their own set of, uh, you know, expectations in the system. So, so I really like the way that he's doing that. Um, it means uh, it, what he's doing is really building out that domain language kind of step by step. Um, you know, you'd be amazed at how effective some simple changes would be if you just tweak, try, and test. Then tweak, try, and test, you know. Making sure that you get that magic happening there with de defining that domain language and putting it relative to, okay, if we got this, this user type or this uh, role and they have these predefined attributes that go along with it, 
Man, I, I see where that adds a tremendous amount of value to any team. Um, it's just assumed and understood that they have privilege to these things, that they're doing these things in the system already. Now we can pick up in the middle of the story or the middle of the goal as opposed to, you know, having to run through everything, you know, from beginning to end. Because a lot of times when you write a story, you're wanting to make sure that you're meeting all of those preconditions, those triggers, and then those post conditions that we talked about so often. And I'm gonna bring I'm gonna bring that around full circle in a minute with part of what he's sharing with us here um, when he's using these uh, behavior driven models that he's doing. Um, the thing is, is that when we get that domain language down and we have those predetermined or predefined roles in that system, it's helping your development team to understand who they're coding it for. And, you know, and if you don't know who you're coding it for, you really got a problem. <laughs> so, I mean, we really need to make sure we're doing that stuff, right? So the first thing I think that he's doing here, and again, I, I, he's defining his target market. Um, that phrase is really important. So the as a phrase, you know, and again, we talked about this in the user story uh, episode that we talked about last time, where that target audience or specific user or user group that's really critical to the team understanding. And so what he's doing here is that, you know, he's taking that basic routine use from that group of folk or from that audience, and he's telling the team that they need to experience this new set of changes or this update to the system. I think the second thing that he's doing there that I really like is defining the goal. He is making sure he's defining that and he's staying away from the how. That's important. He's simply stating this user needs to do something. He's also separating the users from the goals. Now, I alluded to this a little bit earlier. You know, y'all remember we, I had you take out your handy-dandy spreadsheet or your worksheet or your workbook or whatever, um, particularly with a large product backlog. This, is, this really works well, and I like the way that he's doing it. Um, what I what I had you guys do early on, if you remember, we uh, we said, okay, we're going to have a column for as a, the next column is going to be for I want to, and then the third for the why or the so that. The reason I do that is because, and, and it looks like what Hans is doing too is working for him and his team is because one idea leads to another. That's one benefit of it. You can split up, filter um, you know, uh, enhance, you can have those. And again, we talked about that story mapping exercise where you got your A level, B level, C level, whatever. You can tag those independently and individually there. You can split them easier. You can come across those nuggets that you want to add in. The second benefit to that approach is that you're able to filter them off, right? So if you're meeting with this group, then that group is that group. They are the group who are approving this certain set of functionality for this group or for this audience well now you found yourself in a position where you can filter those off in your sheet you can pull out a quick list out of your product backlog and you can show off everything you want to show off in that uh, product backlog just with the click of a sort or a filter button right and so when he says that it makes sense and it's more readable and consumable i understand what he means um, he's got a he's got a way now where he can show individual audiences and again your audience matters Okay, but he's got a way to sort and show off all of those things to individual audiences without leading everybody down a more confusing path, which would be showing them the full product backlog. Right now, there's a time and place for everything. You do want to show off your full product backlog um, in some, you know, in some areas with some audiences or whatever. 
But the idea to, to just keep them focused on what it is that you're working on and showing them the goals and the outcomes that you're driving towards for that group, I think it's really important. So there's a lot of benefits in doing that. The next thing that he's talking about here, and I'm and I think this is really cool. Um, there there are certain types of syntax, I guess, driven uh, approaches that you could do um, this kind of thing. But what he's doing here is he's defining his team language. So he's defined the market, he's defined the goal or the user and the goal. And now what he's doing is he's defining a language. And remember, we talked about the pre precondition trigger post uh, post condition. You know, we talk about that all the time. Well, the reason, and this is probably going to hit home with you, when I mentioned earlier when he said when the user does this, then the system does that, or when the user does this, then the system, uh, or then the user does this or is able to do this. Basically what he's saying is we have a syntax or a language around driving the behavior. You know, driving the behavior. And if you put this into your syntax, uh, or I'm sorry, if you put this into your acceptance criteria or your conditions of satisfaction, where you're actually driving the behavior off of some formalized syntax pattern that makes sense, right? Like uh, where he has the when and then, I typically use the given when and then. Um, that is Gherkin. And by the way, I, uh, I'm i going to mention that and some of you are going to be shaking your head like either what is Gherkin or I've tried Gherkin and it sucks and I hate it. Uh, or it's like, uh, I didn't know we were talking about cucumbers all of a sudden, you know. Um, but we'll get into that in a little bit later. But what, what his, in his example above, what he's doing is he, is he is helping people to better understand the behavior from a perspective that is not technical. Technical people get it. Functional people get it. Business people get it. My eight-year-old gets it. Is she eight? She's eight. I'm getting the nod. She's eight. So uh, I can't remember, man. After four girls, it's just like I, I can't keep up. So, uh, But this gherkin, it provides a similar context and a pattern and a syntax for these events that we would often describe as behavior, and it is about behavior. So the more succinct we can be about the behavior we want to drive without dictating how the team will do it, the better off we are for each of our goals. And when I say goals, I mean the user stories. And again... It doesn't matter how you write them as long as you're following a few guidelines. And what I mean by that is uh, you have a targeted user, or even if it's a general user in some case, you have some outcome and you have uh, gained some value for that outcome, right? Because, again, a story represents changed or new functionality in software. So you get your precondition, your trigger, your postcondition, and this is what we're after, after all. You know, a story describes some new or changed functionality, remember? So if that's the case, there's almost got to be always some kind of precondition trigger and postcondition scenario that we got to take into account. So I hope that kind of clears that up. So now, again, I've, I've mentioned Gherkin at this point, and I'm sure many of you are interested or confused by the term. I've added that to my episode backlog or product backlog. I'll begin to elaborate that episode until it is ready to be delivered. So... Uh, you like how I just made you think about how to find those nuggets as your conversations evolve with the folks that you're working with. This is another way you can populate your product backlog. So this free tip was brought to you by Planet Product Owner. All right, so next segment, um, hang tight. We're going to continue walking through the email conversation because there were more comments in the email. And again, uh, Hans offered up some really good ideas on the way that he's doing his user stories and how he's working with his team and defining that domain language that we've talked about. So there's your real-world example 
you know, of how he's doing it. I could give you a hundred of mine, but, you know, I really like to hear it from other folks because when I say it, maybe I'm talking over somebody's head because I assume you know more than you know. So I was just reading straight from the email, and he did, by the way, approve this message um, for me to talk to uh, talk to you guys and share with you. Um, but hang tight because the next question that we had or the topic that was submitted there that I do want to get to today before we get out of here is how to manage all these different kinds of work types in our sprints, bugs, features, technical debt, whatever the case is. So hang tight. We're going to get to that in the next segment. So again, thanks for the topic, Hans. And really, by the way, because I'm sure uh, many product owners uh, struggle with this in some way, uh, it seems like you got a pretty good grip on reality when it comes to how you balance your work types too. Um, if if you have trouble balancing the work types that you're trying to commit to, hopefully this next segment is going to help. I'm going to share what uh, the listener uh, asked me to chat about in his email. So here it goes, uh, a reading from the email. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, comparing features, bugs, and debt. As we only have one holistic backlog, true how to assess or prioritize the new features bugs fixes design technical debt all that stuff overall my current system is that the highest high priority bugs get fixed in the same sprint medium in the next and other later plus we put in every sprint one task from design and one from technical debt backlog even though it seems to work as a rule of thumb what else should i bear in mind or avoid so I think that all of us as product owners kind of, you know, we struggle with this from time to time and, and suffer through <laughs> trying to get bugs, features, debt, issues, whatever, you know, trying to uh, trying to sort through those and prioritize them and make sure that, that we're addressing what we have to. The first thing that I would say is uh, the way that he's got it split up here is it sounds it sounds reasonable to me if it's working. Now, here's where I would expand on that. Um, the first point is is that everybody needs love, right? All of your stakeholders need love. And we all know that everybody's priority is the highest priority, right? So you may have a team doing support. You may have a, t- a team dedicated to runway or architectural work. You may have a team... Uh, dedicated to sending features down to you, you know, whatever. And so I like the idea of creating some kind of guideline or bucket. I'm not, I hate to use the word bucket, but I would say, you know, we're going to commit some kind of split, right? Some kind of split in our focus or our attention or our estimates or whatever. So it could be, you know, 70% of our work is going to be for feature work, 24 uh, defects and 10 for technical debt. I'm just making that up, but some ratio of points or stories or level of effort, level of work, whatever it is. Now, hopefully, you have enough to uh, enough work to constitute this need. Now, again, this is real world product owner stuff. Okay, we can talk through. You know, you can talk to a hundred different product owners out there who are teaching teaching you how to be a product owner, and they really don't. A lot of times what I find, I'm going to be careful when I say this, a lot of them really kind of have their head in the sand when it comes to organizational structures and how it really works in the real world. I mean, it's like architecting it without actually applying it or doing it, right? And so I think it's a good problem to have because you're probably uh, actually providing some opportunities to grow and reach a lot of different audiences with your valuable work if you have enough kind of work to constitute this. 
Um, and again, I'm sure everybody deals with it, but I think the only way that you really can deal with it is to have some kind of working agreement within your organization to segment or group or bucket. I hate to use the word bucket, but that's what it is, uh, to group those work types uh, into percentages or some kind of breakdown for it, right? Um, but we need to make sure if you do have an agreement in place that you adhere to it. And, and, and again, you know, using words like tentative or stretch or, um, you know, maybe we pull this in or whatever, all of those are fine as long as everybody understands the language and what it is that you're trying to communicate to them. But if you sign on the dotted line, so to speak, that you're going to do a 70, 20, 10 percentage split between features, defects or bugs and, and technical debt or runway work, then you need to make sure you're adhering to your agreement, right? Because what's going to end up happening here is that if you don't do that, somebody's going to be put in the back line, the back of the line. They're not going to get their priorities worked. And then guess what? Now your front porch is dirty. Well, we don't want our front porch dirty. Uh, part of keeping your front porch clean is upholding to your commitment. If you say that's what you're going to do, then that's what you're going to do your best to do. If you can't do it, you got to have a good reason why, right? And it's not just because the product owner said we're not going to do it. That can't work, right? I mean, we already talked about that. So what you don't want to do is ignore your commitment. And I would also make sure that something like this is agreeable with the team and with other mem members of the organization as well. I mean, now look, this could have been something that this listener submitted that, that works for their group. Organizations mutually agreed, it, it, you know, it's it's mutually agreeable plan. Everybody's bought in to the way we split up this work and give the attention the way that it is. And if that works, then great. But, it, but I don't think it's something that I would just go out day one and say, this is how we're going to do it. I think I would negotiate that a little bit if you're having some trouble with it. So splitting up that work and balancing, I think that's a great idea. Um, the next thing when we're talking about working from this holistic backlog, I, I just want to mention this on prioritizing defects or issues. Who says it's a bug? Who says it's a defect? You know, is everybody, you know, is this thing running everybody off? Is it keeping everybody from using the system or reaching their goal? Um, are we getting a lot of customer feedback that we have to fix this? It, are, are we creating adoption problems? You know, these kinds of things really have to go into effect. You know, I think that time is much better spent on putting out stuff out there that, that adds value and is testable for us to come back and refactor or to update. Um, I think there's a lot more value in that than just uh, working on ticky-tack bugs and defects that somebody says is important. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not discrediting you guys who are making these defects. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is, just put your efforts in the right place. You know, don't 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 just assume that you know we've got a list of ten defects and all ten of these defects are so damn critical that we got to get them out the door and fix them, or we're going to run off all of our users. You can't really make that assumption. You got some data behind that, okay? So if you can find some data behind that and, and the data indicator points out to you, yeah, we're about to lose 50% of our users <laughs> or, you know, people are closing their uh, closing their business with us or whatever if we don't get this fixed, then okay, I could see that, right? But remember, just make sure you're, you're putting your efforts in the right place. And that's why I think that 70-20-10 or however you want to split it up, I think there's a caveat there. I think there's always going to be a disclaimer for that. It could be that we don't have bugs that warrant our time, that, that we, you know, w that's not as valuable as what this other work is that we have to do. Now, prioritizing tech debt, that's a little bit different. You're always going to have tech debt, 
but you're usually learning and putting things out there at a pace that garners feedback quickly, and that's really what you want, right? But planning that, um, planning that, it, it, it could be critical, you know, if you get into a deal where um, these, I guess, striking that balance where, you know, you have put in a plan for technical debt later on that supports what it is that you want to deliver later, and it all comes together. Boy, we love it when a plan comes together. You know, that's why planning for that technical debt is really critical to you. You know, you want to strike that balance. You don't want to have a bunch of technical credit that you're never going to use, right? I mean, that just doesn't make sense. Um, so planning that and striking that balance is where you start realizing the beauty of your planning, which is which is the first thing that, you know, traditional folks believe don't exist. You know, it just doesn't exist in Agile approaches and cultures and Scrum or XP or anything Agile, right? So depending on the makeup of your organization, you may have some partners to assist with that technical debt. The point is to make sure that you got a plan and you keep the commitment of what can be completed and shown and demoed at the end of the sprint. Now, this runway work and, and you know, and different frameworks, by the way, provide for different methodologies in that and how you handle it as well. You know, if you look at like SAFE, for example, you know, you got the portfolio program and team level and the program level, you're supposed to be getting all this runway work done. Um, sometimes that works out and sometimes it doesn't. OK, we all know that in the real world. Um, but the idea is being lean and agile doesn't always mean that you always deliver something every time you do something. You just, you know, just to deliver it. I mean, that that's not what it's about. It's about delivering and maximizing value. So if you feel too much pressure to deliver something all the time, then a lot of a lot of times folks are missing the point of this mindset and of this whole journey. Sure, it's it's nice to produce something potentially shippable at the end of every single sprint or every day, but let's face it, in the real world, that's just, that may just not happen, right? So make sure your efforts are in the right place. You know, if you start diving into too much technical debt, that's not going to benefit you in your roadmap or or benefit you in your plan uh, going forward then you're probably not working on the right stuff. Um, so that's why I, again, have the bucket issue, you know, the, the issue with the buckets and splitting up that work. You know, this just-in-time idea is really a pretty cool thing, uh, as it turns out, because you don't want code sitting on the shelf for 100 years before somebody's ready to consume it. But you also don't want to try to make something brand new that you need to have that work done, uh, you know, kind of as a predecessor to run that work down, right, or, or to create that runway. So it's a balance. Um, it's it's a very tedious balance, but it starts with planning. Um, I guess the uh, third point I want to make about this splitting up is the backlog. The backlog is yours to prioritize. Make no mistake. I mean, you're the product owner. That's the way it should be. If you're not getting that, you need to ask for some more support from your organization to make that happen. Uh, make sure you're setting and managing expectations within the scope of the thing. It's It's about transparency, learning, growing, trusting. If you found a balance that works for your team, uh, I would still encourage you to try new things to improve it, you know, obviously. But that backlog is yours to prioritize. Um, the order of the work, the sprint backlog, that's not yours. That belongs to the team. The team figures all that stuff out. You're telling them the goal, all right? So just keep that in mind. So when you're talking about running through all of these different bugs, fixes, defects, tech debt, whatever, you know, make sure that you're prioritizing that and that it is in line with what your goals are. Splitting that stuff up is cool. It's fun. It's neat. It's it is a way to help satisfy everybody's needs out there. But if you agree to something like that, you got to stick to it. All right. Now, the next part of the question was, what to avoid? 
So let's talk about that in the next segment, if you will. Hang in, uh, hang tight. We'll uh, we'll get to that one in the next segment. Thanks. So we've covered, uh, I think, some points about splitting up that big, massive backlog that we talk about with all those different types of work. There's one thing that I want to leave you with here, though, because part of the question, too, was, and it was a great question, what are some things that you would do or to, you know, go along with that or what issues do you see with that? But also, what would you try to avoid? And, you know, we all we we all get into this, right? I mean, we we see things. And so I'm going to tell you just kind of from my from my experience, I guess, what it is that I want to make sure that we're avoiding as product owners when we're managing these different work types. So one of the primary things that I would try to avoid is having a major shift in a sprint goal. In other words, we agree to some work, team takes it in, they start working through their tasks or their subtasks or your stories that you've written or they start writing their own stories or whatever the case is. No matter the work types that we're having, I want to ensure that we're protecting against the opportunities that we have to maximize the value. So, you know, if it comes out with, hey, look, we, we've got this thing right here, but it's growing, it's growing, it's growing on this technical debt. Um, it's really out of scope for your sprint goal because, again, you're you're working on a couple of different things. Remember, I told you you're going to have secondary sprint goals too or outcomes that you want to have uh, as a result of ending the sprint, right? The main thing you want to do is, is is prevent from having some kind of major shift in that. So if it grows to the point of just total uncertainty, then maybe your sprint goal should have been understand everything about this <laughs> instead of let's work on this and pick at it until we can figure it out. And and now we've got so much. The thing is, is that if it's technical debt and you're really kind of the team is underwater or trying to figure something out that, that's not coming to them so easily, it's probably not the biggest priority right now anyway. Now, having said that, you got systems down and you're in total communication failure or whatever, um, then that's that's different, right? Now you now you do have an all hands on deck, some major shift in the sprint goal. Okay, I'm not talking about those. That's an exception. That's not the rule. I'm talking about just trying to make sure that you don't have any major shift in your sprint goal. I think that's one thing to avoid when you're trying to structure these different types of work for your sprint or for your uh, increment, whatever it is that you're doing, your iteration, however you're calling it. So if you've already got a goal that's stated and understood, you can't hijack that, right? And you can't let it be hijacked. You're going to have to work really close with your scrum master to have, you know, and y'all have heard me say my gag factor, you know, you got to have a gag factor. If you start diving in and you're, you know, you started an effort with, you know, if, if the team is agreed that it's 10 points and y'all know how I feel about points but if they say this is a five point and then it grows into an eight point and then we have to split it because we need 13 points and then before we know it it's 50 points whatever you know okay look that your planning sucks at that point right so let's go back to the table and make sure we're getting ahead of it and refer to um, the second point that I talked about was planning is critical right the next thing I think that I would uh, avoid, and again, I've done these before, right? So, I mean, I'm, t- I'm not telling you anything that I haven't done already, haven't learned from, all right? And But I'm really bold when it comes to learning the lesson, and I'm going to share with you this, this, this is the next thing that I would try to avoid. And this is, again, this is the tragic flaw of a lot of product owners. And I'm not going to say all, but in probably in the Greek, it means all, I don't know, but probably all product owners suffer from this at one point or another. 
Y'all remember when I told you that at some point, we just have to stop lying about what we're doing or what we're planning to execute, right? Or what we're executing, when we're going to have it done. That, in my opinion, is the single biggest thing to defend against when you have these mixed work types and you're trying to plan, right? Because the thing is, is that you can, there's, you only got so much energy in a day. You only got so much bandwidth in a day. You've only got so many things that you can handle at one time. You've only got so many developers on your team. You know, the pipe's just big enough to fit what's in the pipe, right? I mean, you, you, you don't have more pipe. And, you know, the thing is, is that when we're talking about delivering something or getting finished or done with something, there's a lot that goes into that, man. So, I'm, again, I'm not saying just take a lax approach, you know, a relaxed approach on how much you're committing to. I'm saying get a reasonable estimate of what it is that you think you can do. And, you know, and I've told you guys about points, and I'll refer to it again. If 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 we're in sprint planning, right, and we commit to doing this, 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 and this because it reaches this goal that I've stated that I want us to do, you know, then that's what we need to do. But my question is always this. I don't ask the team, do we need more points or do we need fewer points? That I never ask that question. I say, look, ignore the points for a minute and tell me, do you think we can get this done? And if they say yes, I hold them to it. If they say no, I ask them what we pull out. I mean, that's easy, right? But communicating that outside your group and up from your group, you know, that's really sometimes difficult. You know, we talked about planning and we talked about uh, informing and letting our stakeholders and sponsors and whoever else in the in the fold, letting them know, look, I'm not going to give you a hard date to deliver this. Here's my plan. We're going to work that. Okay. And that and that's really how it's, how it's going to go for us. But the tragic flaw, you know, we, we've got to stop lying about what we're committing to do. So don't overcommit. You know, if you undercommit and overdeliver, you know, you've done a great thing. You know, and then people start expecting that, and then you got to kind of balance it out. But either way, I mean, that's a win any time, right? It doesn't matter how often you do it. And I'm not saying just lay back. I'm just saying don't overcommit. All right. The last thing that I would say that we want to avoid when we're working on this mixed bag of ingredients into the uh, product backlog. And and this is one that's really scary to me, and it kind of goes back to that major shift in the sprint goal. I, I would just say you want to avoid committing to the ambiguous, you know, totally ambiguous, something you totally don't know about, or it's vague, or um, this thing is a huge dependency or a predecessor, and we're not going to do that until it's ready, you know. Make sure that that's being upheld <laughs> because the technical team tells me that we're going to be able to have some new functionality if we do this technical debt task and they give me some specific things that actually add value count me in for prioritizing that okay but if they tell me well we need to do this um because and i say why and they say well because we need to do this and if i say why and they say well because it's going to do this or this is what we're going to be I don't want I don't want somebody just proving to me that they can work on, you know, things that are new. I don't want somebody just to prove to me that we have uh some high level senior developer who wants to take over the world. I don't that's not what I'm in this for. Okay. You give me some specific things 
that actually add value that um, are going to be in line and support our roadmap that I'm in, right? I'm going to treat it just like I do with the users. I mean, the user has to prove the business case. It shouldn't be any different for the technical debt we're taking on, right? So, it, you know, if we're if we're attacking some of that technical debt and this thing is kind of an outlier, so to speak, then they're going to have to prove to me where it's going to add value to what we're doing and what this business or this segment or whatever it is that we're doing, and it's based off of our roadmap, right? So I'm probably not buying it just because they want to prove they can do the new shiny thing. I, I'm just going to question that. So don't 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 commit to things that are ambiguous or that's not supportive of your roadmap. That's that's really important, by the way. All right, so uh, so I think overall the point is to have, allow some flexibility of work types. But that doesn't mean you have to have each one of those quote unquote buckets full every time you start a sprint or an increment planning or whatever it is. Uh, I just think though that if overall if you do make a commitment that your team is going to do those and that's mutually agreeable, then you need to adhere to it. So. Good luck with that. I hope you pulled some things out of this that will help you along your way. I really enjoyed this episode. The next episode is going to be uh, going to be a lot of fun. We're going to get some encouragement in there. Encouragement, yes, for product owners. We're also going to talk about uh, prepare, prioritize, and promote, maybe. Uh, maybe not. Uh, I do want to get into another couple of topics here because I did leave one off about release planning and communication um, and for roadmap planning. So, I'm looking forward to the next several episodes where we're going to dive into some of this user feedback and uh, I have more emails to reply to. So if I haven't gotten back with you yet, just hang tight. I'm going to get you, I promise. Uh, So until next time, have a safe, lean journey, my friends.